earlier today we were talking about the the world and um, the real world, the other worlds, <laughs> and uh, the the nature of the world according to uh, the Buddha's teaching and uh, according to the area that we're looking at um, is uh, useful, valuable to see what we mean by the world in the context of self-view, letting go of self-view and and uh, the kind of practices we've been looking at. There's a, a well-known uh, incident or dialogue that you find in the Pali Canon where one night this devata called Rohitasa comes to visit the Buddha and uh, Rohitasa says, well, when I was a human being in the life before this one I was a yogi and I had um, developed quite extensive powers and I made the resolution that uh, I would walk until I reached the end of the world and even though I could walk on land, I could walk through the sky I uh, walked and walked and walked and I didn't pause except to answer the call of nature and to rest occasionally but I still couldn't reach the end of the world so can I ask you, is it possible to reach the end of the world by walking? And then the Buddha said, uh, it's impossible to reach the end of the world by walking. But I tell you that unless you reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of dukkha, you won't reach the end of suffering. So this is a, uh, uh, another conundrum, another puzzle. <laughs> so if you, can't, if you can't get to the end of the world by geographical travel, by walking or flying even, walking through the air, uh, uh, how do you get to the end of the world? And then the Buddha goes on to explain in this same dialogue, it's in this, this very body, this uh, fathom-long body, this six-foot-long body with its thoughts and its perceptions, there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So, uh, as you'll notice, and those of you familiar with the Four Noble Truths, that that's... Uh, the way he's speaking, the way he's, he expresses himself aligns exactly with the Four Noble Truths, with the world uh, substituted for dukkha. Uh, there is dukkha, the origin of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. So this might seem, uh, again, a very negative attitude towards the world. <laughs> like, oh, it's a bit sour. Um, but uh, what he's pointing to is the uh, the world taken as a substantial uh, and uh, a solid reality. The, so the cessation of the world uh, in this teaching is is aligned with the cessation of dukkha. If you can't get to the end of the world, you can't get to the end of dukkha. So the Buddha deliberately puts the two together, and uh, so it's helpful to consider what what he means by this, and then in a related teaching, uh, it's in the connected discourses uh, the, the first one, the Turohitasa is in the Deva Sangita the teachings to Devas uh, in the, uh, the later teaching is in the teaching on the uh, I think on the, the six senses chapter 35 sutta number 116 uh, I, know, I know this one very well, I couldn't tell you what 115 is or 117 but <laughs> 116 is this one. And so uh, he defines the nature of the world. 
against a short teaching but very very significant he says that whereby one is a perceiver of the world loka sanyi and a conceiver of the world loka mani uh, that is what is called the world in this dharma and discipline and what is it whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world the eye the ear the nose the tongue the body the mind so that is uh, what is called the world in this dhamma and discipline so in that uh, expression he's clearly stating that what is meant by the world is the world of our experience you can't meaningfully talk about the world outside of the mind's experience of it uh, so it's, it's quite a different um, approach to you know the world in terms of the planet or the stars or in terms of astronomy or or geography and such like but it's more of a what they call a phenomenological approach uh, both in asian uh, philosophy and european philosophy this is one particular way of, of understanding like in this moment we say here we are in the manjushri hall and deer park but everything that we know about being in the manjushri hall in deer park is woven together from sight sound smell taste touch thought right memory that's all put together and says dung here we are we see we hear we we feel uh, we we remember um, and we put it all together and we say well here we are we're we're in the manjushri hall but uh, in its own way the manjushri hall is in your mind right everything that we've ever experienced everything we've ever known wherever we were on the planet whether it was india or britain or america or france or germany australia uh, has all been known through the agency of this mind so rather than the um, ordinary everyday way we say we travel around the world we go from here to there uh, we're a world traveler but experientially the world whatever shape it's taken has arisen and passed away in your mind it's always been known exactly here wherever here was for each of these individual minds each individual uh, sets of experiencing processes <laughs> so uh, this is this is very useful very significant in many ways uh, it's a very um, very helpful teaching to consider that the world is in your mind not that it's all dreamed up and just it's a total fantasy there is a basis of say the 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 way that nature works and and the uh, the four elements working together but uh, you can't know the world uh, outside the agency of the mind and this is what the buddha is pointing to that uh, each one of us doesn't experience the world each one of us experiences our mind's version of the world so it's great when those match each other <laughs> and we can get along we say we gather together at one o'clock you know the, the numbers go one three zero zero ding we're all here very well organized <laughs> we all come here to spend a week reflecting on self-view very good we're all coordinated so that when our worlds match and our agreements meet uh, kind of line up with each other we experience harmony and uh, and ease with each other and we can carry out uh, things together uh, when my world differs from your world um well like uh, uh, very good example right now the world cup is going on so you know if your team just lost then it's the world is bad if your team just won the world is good it's like same game same game <laughs> uh, 
in one sense is the same game, but experientially it's not. It's not the same. <laughs> because yeah, in terms of your world, it's, oh, no, they scored. Or, yes, we scored. So that that is a good example of physically being in the same place, but having you know, very different worlds, very different experiences, very different perceptions. And so because of attachment to our particular biases and perceptions, that's why we clash. That's why we have arguments between nations, between, uh, between social groups in the family, even in your own mind. <laughs> uh, different motivations uh, of our own, our own mind. Uh, the, the growling of our stomach uh, might say one thing, and our, um, our mindfulness and wisdom says, well, um, I think that's enough. <laughs> Like all those helpful signs down at the kitchen you know, about overfilling your, overfilling your plate. It's right there. It's like, like the, uh, um, as we say in the English expression, having your eyes bigger than your stomach. That's probably an Indian equivalent. <laughs> but, uh, so that um, understanding that the world is the world of our own experience is not saying that there isn't any, anything really there. There's a basis for our common experience. But what the Buddha's teaching is pointing to is that uh, it's not meaningful to talk in those terms. It's only meaningful to talk in terms of, of the, the world as we experience it. That whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is what we call the world. And so getting to the end of the world is, in a sense, seeing the, that dependent, empty nature. Like, how could my version of the world be more real or more valuable or more meaningful than yours? Um, and so uh, the appreciation that what each of us experiences is our version of the world, that means we find a bit more space for each other. Again, talking about compassion. Uh, how could what I experience be the defining reality and what you experience be automatically wrong. If it's different, it must be wrong. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> that uh, the quality of, uh, of openness of heart is greatly enhanced when you're with other people and your first uh, uh, impression, your attitude is, well, of course they see it differently. It's like right now, uh, I see that the, the back wall with the, with the yellow paint and the door and the clock, you see the the shrine with uh, the Bodhisattva Manjushri behind me. We're, we're seeing different things. <laughs> You know, because we're looking in different directions. So the more that we can appreciate, well, of course, other people have different perspectives, different uh, points of view. It doesn't mean to say that we, we automatically give more value to others, or we don't, we don't see that you know, we might know the directions while they don't know. <laughs> uh, but that sense of, um, of uh, say, taking our version of the world as being absolutely true and valid and reliable, that's... That's loosened. We're seeing, well, this is my mind's version of the world. It might be accurate in terms of the, the map or, or the, um, the, the geography book, but um, so what? <laughs> that uh, this is what, just one, one version of the world, and, and so why should my experience be the defining reality? So when we appreciate or take these, these kind of teachings to heart, it changes the perspective. So that the way that the, the mind appreciates the present moment experience uh, and why the ending of the world, reaching the end of the world, is uh, ending Dukkha. It's like, where does the world end? 
Where does the substantiality of the world end? Where does that solidity of it end? It ends in the awareness of this mind. That's where, I would say, that's where the world ends. It ends here in this awareness, because it's this awake mind that knows, oh, in this moment there's just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling. And if, you know, the, the feelings are... are real you know, like I touch this this table and there's a sensation yes and my fingers don't go through the wood just because I'm having a different attitude towards it <laughs> that the those laws of nature still function but that uh, that false solidity that we give to our opinions our emotions our, our attitudes our ideas that is what is seen through that they're they're seen as as convenient fictions, they have functional, conventional truths, they can't be absolute or substantial. So that when that is seen and when we relate to our body, our personality, our relationships, our work, the, the things that we conventionally own, <laughs> in that way, there's a great lightness of heart, there's a great spaciousness. So that's why the ending of the world equals the ending of, of suffering, is when the world is seen as empty, as insubstantial, that when we say our, our name or our job or our, our age or our role or any, any of those things, when those are recognized as convenient fictions, just an easy way of talking about things rather than being, no, I, I am Ajahn Amaro, that's what I am, that's me, that's the real, that's, I'm, I'm real, I really am this. Yeah. Uh, to my sisters, I'm not Ajahn Amaro, I'm their little brother. You know, they, they're kind of polite and respectful, <laughs> they help me keep my rules, but I'm not their Ajahn, you know, <laughs> I'm their brother. <laughs> so. I don't sit in their minds in the same way that I would sit in the, in the minds of people when I'm sitting up on a seat you know, talking or being the abbot of a monastery. So uh, this is a, a, a very potent and very direct way to find peace and ease. And, to, and again, from the conversation we had this morning, to, to function more effectively uh, in our, our life and our work if we can see that these... Um, these structures that we give such solidity to, that these are, these are, say, convenient fictions, conventional forms that we, we designate into existence. We can decide to give this value, and we, we say so we call we call this you know, a week long retreat on on self view, and it, here are the dates. You know, come, <laughs> and so we put this together through a set of human agreements, and so we agree to call it this. We make it this, but there isn't really anything here. Apart from our agreements, <laughs> it's, we, we agree to come together and hopefully some valuable qualities come out of it, but it is intrinsically insubstantial. This isn't really a table. Uh, we put the things together. Its tableness comes together because of the, the fabric of a few trees where, uh, that were, were chopped down and trimmed up and shaped into a form, put together, and then call it table. The, without, the, without the bits of wood, there's no table. <laughs> The tableness comes from these being put together in this particular way and us humans looking at it and giving it a name. It's not, that from its own side, it's not a table. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, it might, this might seem like sort of philosophical mind games or like, well, so how is this useful? <laughs> but if we can keep uh, sustaining that, that quality of vision, seeing things in that way, life becomes a lot more spacious. 
people become a lot more easy to get along with. Our own mind, our own body gets, becomes a lot easier to work with. The world becomes a lot uh, easier, more spacious to live in. And uh, as was, we were saying, it, we become much more effective in uh, the, the things that we do. Uh, one of the, the, the ways that um, uh, this really came home to me um, uh, many years ago was when I was about to set off on a, a long walk through England back in 1983 when probably a few of you weren't even born. Well, actually, quite a lot of you probably weren't even born. 1983, so that's 39 years ago. Wow. <laughs> I decided to ask permission to walk from our monastery in Sussex near the south coast of England up to a new branch monastery up near the Scottish border. And then uh, the way that it worked out, we had a very wiggly route to, um, through the, the English countryside and cities and made our way um, up to Northumberland. That took about uh, three months, uh, a three-month-long walk, about 800 and some odd miles. But um, on the day that I was leaving, setting off with my walking companion, the morning reflection that Ajahn Sumedho gave at Chithurst, the day we set off, um, that was incredibly helpful along the way was uh, actually there's nobody going anywhere there's just conditions of mind that are changing and that when you're really kind of going places and you've got a map and a destination <laughs> and there's a lot of movement through space you know it can be I am going somewhere we're heading north we're going to this place that place the other place but that uh, that context, uh, as the the um, as the Buddha is talking about here, the the world being in the mind, there's uh, in terms of experience, nobody is going anywhere. The mind is always absolutely here, wherever you've been throughout your entire lives. Every single one of us here, all our lives, wherever we were, it was here, wasn't it? I mean, not Deer Park, obviously, but wherever you were, that was there was a here-ness, right? So the world has always happened exactly here. So that uh, there is no, and there's nobody going anywhere. There's conditions of mind that are changing. That's relating to the present moment experience in terms of how it's actually felt. The body is moving through space, but the, the mind that knows the body moving through space, walking along through the country lanes, is absolutely here. The mind that knows us sitting in the Manjushri Hall at uh, Deer Park it knows this, it, the mind that knows my hand moving is not moving. <laughs> the mind is always, is absolutely present. So it's outside of the realm of space. Uh, it's always here and it's outside the realm of time. It's always absolutely now. So that uh, that quality of stillness that can be accessed when that's appreciated, even as the body is moving along <laughs> and can be moving along at quite some speed, uh, then uh, the, the experience inside can be one of great stillness, that there isn't anybody going anywhere, there's just conditions of mind changing. So uh, again, this might not seem particularly relevant, or is this some sort of a, you know, interesting little mind game, but how much of us spend a lot of time and spend a lot of energy and stress trying to get places, <laughs> trying to get onto the next thing, get to the next place, leaning into that next moment, that's a epitome of bhavatanha, the desire to become, to get over there, to that's that sense of anticipation, trying to get somewhere. Um, and that if we can access this quality of, uh, of awareness which is ever-present, uh, 
be that which knows the world rather than that which is attached to the world, then, again, even as you're going places, even as journeys are being made, work is being done, there's a profound restfulness, a stillness, uh, an ease that's there, even as you're moving quickly. Um, I've given so many Dhamma talks recently, I forget forget what I said to whom and where, (laughs) conventionally speaking. And so we did that initial walk in in 1983, and then 25 years later, my walking companion, Nick Scott, and I revisited uh, certain stretches uh, of the walk just to see how things had changed and to see what people were still around and uh, just to to tread some of the same paths. (laughs) But it was really interesting to see that all my, every single one of my memories, uh, like, it's like, one of the chief lessons of that second walk was like, wow, memory is really a Nietzsche. <laughs> it's really totally unreliable. I had these mental images, okay, St. Martha's Church, the only church in England dedicated to St. Martha, up on the hill near Guildford, and the, you, know, you can stand in the church doorway and look out over towards the, the hills in the south. No, you can't. <laughs> The door faces to the east. There isn't the door to the south. Like, they turned the church round. Well, I've got a clear memory. We were looking out to the south, and we were sitting in the church doorway. And no, you weren't. A big uh, copper copper beech tree in the village in Yorkshire. I remember right by the post office. There was this huge copper beech tree. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's the other side of the road. Ah, like, oh, who moves the who moves this three hundred year old tree? It, they didn't move it. It was so that was um, uh, that was uh, an interesting part of uh, uh, that. Uh, you know, memory is uh, highly unreliable. Um, I'm someone who's known as having a good memory, but over and over and over again, my distinct memories of how it had been 25 years before were like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't that way. And this lay supporter had her house. Squires Hill was just off the village green of Tilford. And then we get to the village green in Tilford, they've moved Squire's Hill. <laughs> Where did the hill go? <laughs> Half a mile outside the village. Huh? What? But I remember. There was the green and there was the driveway with the laurel trees. And no, it wasn't. So that's really a good lesson to recognize that your clear, distinct memories are not reliable. Um, again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but um, that's uh, highly likely. So anyway, one reason I mentioned this about movement and space is that uh, on one particular day, uh, a lay supporter uh, arranged to meet us in the town of Swaffham in Norfolk. And uh, the elderly lady who we'd visited and stayed with on the original walk in 83, she'd passed away. But in memory of her, in honor of her, we wanted to go and visit her town once again. This other friend said, OK, well, I'll offer you a meal in Swaffham. And so that morning, we were a little bit late getting, uh, getting ourselves packed up and putting the tent away and everything. And so um, we were in this, in this village and looking at the map, and we realized, oh, it's, uh, it's 12 miles from here to Swaffham, and uh, uh, it's already 9.30. That's going to be uh, two and a, 12 miles in two and a half hours. We, we're not going to make it. And I decided, yes, we are. We can do that, <laughs> which is quite a you know, quite a, a brisk walk, about um, about five miles an hour. 
and we had these, you know, our backpacks on as well. And I just started walking at this vigorous pace. It, it was really interesting. Normally, my companion uh, in these hikes, these Tudong walks, Nick Scott, he's much taller than me and with a longer stride, kind of Ajahn uh, Chivako size and, and energy. And I, I kind of left him far behind. <laughs> and I was walking extremely quickly with this quite heavy pack. Uh, but there was this feeling of, of extreme stillness, you know, even as the body's kind of uh, sort of speeding along these, on foot along these country lanes, uh, there was this kind of inner peacefulness, stillness, even as great energy was being expended. And, I, and it struck me like this was a very good uh, example of this, uh, you know, the mind is just uh, uh, fully present, aware of this perceptions of walking and, you know, the hedges and the fields and the trees are all passing by. And uh, and we got to Swaffham by 12 o'clock. We did the, the 12 miles in two and a half hours, which was, uh, I was quite uh, surprised, <laughs> surprised at, uh, pleased by, but uh, it was also, it wasn't exhausting. It was, uh, it was also very peaceful, even though there was great vigor and exertion. So in our lives, in the other world, <laughs> when you are going places and doing things and making arrangements and getting, um, uh, making appointments, that is still applicable. It's still exactly the same. The mind is still going nowhere. <laughs> there is the conditions of mind that are changing. That, uh, even in the midst of Delhi, even uh, you know, on the, in Hyderabad or, or Bangalore or flying in an airplane, that uh, the mind which knows it is always absolutely here, absolutely present. So Venerable Ajahn Chah used to, I was mentioning, I think, a day or so ago, how he would put this puzzle, if you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still, where do you go? Uh, another of these puzzles that he, he put to people when they came to visit was, uh, he would say, have you ever seen flowing water? And people would say, yeah, of course. You know, he's, there's you know, streams and... And you know, rivers and the, the river Amun that goes through Ubon. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I've seen flowing water. I said, Well, did you ever see still water? And they said, Well, yeah, of course. You know, just stay in that, in that jug and you know, in a puddle, it's, uh, in, the, in the rice paddies, yeah. He said, Well, did you ever see still flowing water? Nam Lining. And they go, Huh? Yeah, did you ever see still flowing water? Do you, have you ever seen that? And again, he let people sort of guess, say, Well, um, is it a dropping an ice cube? Uh, <laughs> uh, or they would come up with a, uh, is, uh, different possibilities of how that might work. And he'll say no. Uh, and he'd let them imagine and, and come up with a few guesses. And then he'd say, the mind is like still flowing water. Perceptions and thoughts, they flow constantly. They come and go and change without, without pause. But that which knows the flowing of thoughts and perceptions that is perfectly still. And it's, it's a stillness outside the realm of movement. It's an utterly um, present quality. It's pure presence, if you like. So the mind is like still flowing water. There's stillness, but there's flowing. There's flowing, but there's stillness. And this was in the very last period of his teaching, before he had a stroke and, and was paralyzed, couldn't speak anymore, this was uh, the main theme that he, he was using. And so the, the biography that was just recently published about him is called Stillness Flowing. That's the title of the, of the biography. Um, and so this is a, a, a good exercise. We'll go and uh, do some 
some uh, walking meditation soon. Um, and you can practice this. <laughs> we, we can practice it now, but uh, even as uh, the, the body is walking up and down uh, to see if there can be that appreciation of that quality of stillness, even as there's movement going on, even as there's the, walking, the body walking up and down, that which knows the body is always absolutely here. The mind never really goes anywhere. Awareness doesn't apply in the realm of mind, I would say. And that, um, again, it's, this isn't just a kind of clever mind game, oh, look at that, <laughs> that uh, a sort of conjuring trick, but it's a very practical tool <laughs> that uh, the ability to find that quality of stillness and spaciousness, which you don't have to create, you don't have to make it. it it's like, it's already the actuality. It's not like something you can, you, you haven't got or you can't, you, you, you can get more of. It's always, it's always been this way. The mind has always been absolutely the center of experience throughout our entire life. Always, in, in all times, in all places. But because the attention gets so caught with with happiness, unhappiness, coming, going, changing, decision-making, uh, loving, hating, uh, planning, <laughs> regretting, uh, opinionating, uh, b busy with our responsibilities, that we don't notice that quality because the, the, the moving, you know, the, the mobile uh, and you know, loud and bright mobile uh, world is far more compelling and more demanding. So it takes a bit of effort to to uh, be aware of that quality uh, of stillness. But it's uh, a, uh, a wonderful resource to be able to do that because it uh, relieves the, the heart, the jitta, from an enormous amount of stress. That, that uh, The more that we are caught into that flow of becoming, always getting onto the next thing, always leaning into the next moment, the more we're kind of aiming for what's over there, um, then the more we miss what's here. <laughs> we, we miss the reality of the present because we're so busy sort of leaning into the potentiality uh, of the next moment. So I, I suspect this is familiar to quite a number of us. Maybe some of you are thinking, what's he talking about? I'm always ever-present. <laughs> Perhaps so, well, Sartu, if that's the case. But most of us um, are drawn into that uh, planning, uh, expecting, hoping, fearing, uh, worrying, um, sorting, arranging, uh, leaning into the, the next moment. Uh, and that's one of the, the, the great causes of stressfulness. And that's, so that, that being caught in the bhava-tanha uh, is uh, the only way that most, most of us, again, for, very commonly, the only way we find a relief from that is we bhavatanha. Like, thank God it's Friday. <sighs> Switch off. Yeah. Oh, it's the weekend. Lie in. Uh, ha you know, have a drink. Just zone out. You know, watch a, a compelling movie or soap opera or something just to, to stop feeling to disconnect. And uh, I think the other day I was saying, isn't it interesting how the most peaceful moment of the meditation is when you ring the bell? Because even the meditation becomes a thing I'm doing. And that efforting and, and me doing something to get some result is stressful. But when we're caught in that duality between bhavatanha, we bhavatanha, just either 
uh, what we're doing, what we're trying to get, where we're trying to go, what we're trying to do, and even doing the meditation, um, then to find some rest, to find some ease, uh, the natural thing to do is just to switch off, zone out, vibhavatanha, to, to, to not feel, to not be, to, to try and, and disconnect and go numb. But both bhavatanha and vibhavatanha, they're both causes of more dukkha. So, so that if we're caught in that cycle of, of being drawn into excitement, becoming, ambition, and, uh, and getting and doing and, and so on, uh, and then say relieving ourselves of the stress of that by just switching off and zoning out, then we're creating the causes for more and more dukkha along the way. So this is one of the reasons why, right at the very beginning, I was talking about one of the key pieces uh, of, I say, learning to let go of self-view and these eye-making and mind-making habits, is how effort can be made, a direction can be given, free of that becoming, free of that self-view, free of bhavatanha. And so then, we're not always waiting for it to be over so I can be peaceful. <laughs> Uh, we're not waiting for uh, this to finish so I can switch off and, and not feel. But rather, there's peacefulness in the work that we do, in the, in the responsibilities that we have, in the, in the effort that we make. The effort is being made, like that, was that example of um, striding through the Norfolk countryside. Yeah, effort can be made, but it can be peaceful at exactly the same time. Uh, we don't have to wait for the effort to stop, so then, oh, thank goodness, that's over. <laughs> So that we're freeing the heart from that bhavatanha vi bhavatanha uh, trap, uh, and that uh, peace is coming from the, the skillful attitude, not from whether the action is being taken or there's there's no action being taken. Uh, another of the, the scriptural teachings that I, I the last thing I'll I'll share before we go and do some walking meditation for a bit is. Um, there's a dialogue between Venerable Ananda and Venerable Sariputta. And uh, Sariputta, along with being a brilliant explainer of Dhamma teachings, who was very erudite and eloquent, very skilled at describing all the different um, aspects of the teaching, he was also a very, very accomplished meditator. Interestingly, he had no psychic powers at all. Uh, unlike his friend Mahamogalana, who was replete with all sorts of psychic powers, wasn't very accomplished as a teacher. Sariputta was a very good teacher and a very good meditator, but none of his meditation um, produced any psychic powers, interestingly. Anyway, so Sariputta uh, has been having a conversation with Ananda, and Sariputta has been describing this particular kind of of concentration where his attention, his mind had completely let go of identification with the senses, with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So the mind was, was perfectly aware but had let go of the field of sense experience. And so then uh, Ananda asks him, so what were you aware of if, the, if you uh, uh, had let go of, of all the aspects of the, uh, of the experiential sensory field? And then the response that Sariputta gives him, he says, I was aware of the, the reality that Nibbāna is the cessation of becoming. Bhavāni rodho nibbānaṁ. The cessation of becoming is Nibbāna. Bhavāni rodho nibbānaṁ. And that's it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was aware of in, the, in that state. And so I, I, that's a, another phrase I like to, to reflect upon, I feel is 
very helpful that the cessation of becoming is nibbana and it relates to this area of um, stillness flowing and uh, and learning how to go nowhere <laughs> while you're while you're while you are going places <laughs> because that uh, it illustrates how when the heart is free of that power of that becoming um, that that uh, right there that is the piece of nibbana bhava nirodho the cessation of becoming is nibbana it doesn't mean stopping in mid stride or you you kind of freeze in position that it's not that uh, it's the attitude of mind that is attached to the things that are changing that's what creates the becoming so that the the when the mind is completely unentangled unattached unidentified with all of that that which is coming and going and changing then there is the great peace of of nibbana that great ease and simplicity that, that peacefulness so bhava nirodo nibbanang is a helpful little phrase to uh, to bring to mind and to to re reflect upon so uh, I'll, I'll finish my afternoon reflections there